Imagine you're an Alabama Republican. You're deeply Christian, conservative, and pro-life. With the grandstanding and recently surfaced allegations of pedophilic advances, Roy Moore is not your cup of tea. But he denies it, Doug Jones is pretty pro-choice, and Moore's kept a low profile the weekend before the election. So, you'll hold your nose, bite your tongue, and vote for the bad ombre who will vote well, rather than a decent guy who will vote in a bad way. Begrudgingly, you will vote for a humbled Moore. Then, Roy Moore rolls into Election Day on a horse, with his legs flailed out, like he's on a carousel, in a tacky pantomime and caricature of a cowboy. The hubris is the last straw for you, so you stay home. And that's how we go to Congratulations, Senator Doug Jones. I'm Avery Hogarth. I'm Tiana Lowe, and this is The Political Pregame. Sit down and have a drink with us. After a week of upsets and shoes dropping, you'll need it. So, today I'm celebrating the Republican Party defending its integrity, thank God. And I'm celebrating the country and my faith in humanity at least not being completely crushed. So the drink of the week is a margarita. Yes, it's a margarita that we're actually having at my parents' place. Um, So the backstory to the specific margarita, which Avery can attest to is the best margarita she has ever had. I can. It's legendary not only at USC, but uh, this side of the Mississippi for the last uh, four decades. Basically, my dad uh, moonlit... Is, it, is that the past tense of moonlighted or moonlight? Um, <laughs> as a bartender to work his way through med school. And since he can't make us any of the drinks he used to make with moonshine, because that's illegal in California, boo. Uh, he just makes us these really incredible margaritas that he perfected in the 70s. So that's, that's, that's why we have the drink of choice today. All right, on to more pressing matters. Today we'll be discussing <laughs> fake news galore, the FCC's vote on net neutrality, and of course, a legendary upset in Alabama. So let's get right into it. Roy Moore, take it away. All right, so I mean, it's kind of amazing. You have a in 2014, Jeff Sessions wins the Senate vote by 97%. Trump wins in 2016 by 25 points. And Roy Moore loses. That is a feat. I mean, who has done more for the Democratic Party than Steve Bannon? Like, let's be real here. And I know, uh, you know, everyone ta- everyone's talking about this as being Roy Moore's loss and not Doug Jones' win. Although, in a state like Alabama, in which, as Tiana referenced, most Senate races are won by over double digits for the Republicans. Doug Jones still had to run the perfect race, even to close the gap that was lessened by these allegations on Roy Moore. So we really have to ask who's responsible for this. Yeah. So statistically speaking, for in order for Doug Jones to win, everything had to go wrong for Roy Moore and everything had to go right for him. So everything went right for him in the sense that obviously the black vote was huge Black people really stood up to, I guess, someone who said that Dred Scott was a uh, better decision by the Supreme Court than uh, Obergefell and legalizing gay marriage. So obviously, I mean, everyone should take offense to that, but um, the black community in Alabama especially. So I'm seeing a lot of people attribute this as the sole reason why Doug Jones won. That's not completely true. The evangelicals absolutely stayed home. This was a big win for sort of what what is the moral bar that we have? And obviously there still were a lot of people willing to vote for Roy Moore. But if you compare that to the vote share that that Donald Trump got, it's so much smaller. There was also the write-in votes as well, over 20,000 write-ins. Yes, if every single write-in had been for, if every single write-in had voted for Moore instead, he would have won. 
just, it would have been just enough. It was, yeah. I mean, it wasn't a huge number, but it was enough that that would have pushed him over the edge to be Doug Jones. Although it might have been enough for that, you know, 0.5 of a percent that we keep talking about in terms of being able to recount these votes. So, <laughs> yes. Because as we all know, Roy Moore will still not concede this election. He's leaving it up to God to speak. Although, I think my God spoke. deduction from that was that God spoke. The voters <laughs> came out. The voters who believed in God came out or they stayed at home. Either way, nonetheless, they spoke. I think at this point, and I know many people have tweeted, um, Huckabee had a good tweet about it, the fact of, at this point, don't be a sore loser. Yeah. Concede the race, do the right thing, the voters have spoken, and all you can do from here as the GOP party and as Roy Moore is move on and look towards what's next. And, I mean, as with regards to what's next, I mean, I'm... If anything, this was a good show for the laws of political gravity still being in effect. I know um, a lot of Republicans online are saying and a lot of fellow conservatives are saying you can't really be excited about Doug Jones being to the Senate, but you can be happy about Roy Moore not making it there. I think I'd agree with this sentiment very wholeheartedly if if there was already Democratic control of the executive branch, of the House, of the judiciary. But the fact that Republicans have everything anyway— at this point, what we we needed to reassert were what are our standards? What can we tolerate? I mean, if Roy Moore had made it to the Senate, that would have put all of our fellow senators in an untenable situation. Um, and it really would have made it impossible for us to say that we're the party of family values. Well, the issue that I'm having, too, is this angst of now that there's a, Demo- a new Democratic senator in the Senate um, is coming from the point of view from evangelical voters, predominantly, that now we have someone that is pro-abortion in the Senate. Although this isn't an issue, a pressing matter that's being discussed. Right now it's tax reform on the table in which, uh, sorry, in which Doug Jones isn't even going to have a chance to vote on. He is a non-factor in this decision. Why are people hung up over this? I don't see the relevance personally. It's, I mean, okay, it, this this is, from an optical perspective and also statistically, is incredibly similar to when Scott Brown replaced uh, the late Ted Kennedy Um Ted Kennedy, who I think it's, I would just like to point out, we still have not had our Me Too reckoning about, despite the massive amounts of misconduct that he had with women. Um, but that's just an aside. So, you know, Scott Brown, so it was basically Obama won in a landslide electoral college vote, and then Scott Brown won um, what is now Elizabeth Warren's Senate seat. And obviously he didn't hold it for that long. It didn't have that much of a consequence. At the time, it was seen, though, as this sort of... It was reflective of a nationwide rebuttal against Obamacare. And he was basically voted into that seat in order to stop Obamacare or halt its passage. This was a referendum of a similar kind. Obviously, Roy Moore said a lot of things that were disqualifying early on. I mean, I was just even looking what he was saying about Supreme Court cases. I'm not an attorney. You'd probably know more about the legal aspect, but everything... All the arguments about him just defending or just fighting against judicial supremacy to me didn't make a lot of sense because, as David French pointed out in his piece about the comprehensive case against Roy Moore, he said, is a justice defying previous judicial precedent and previous court rulings for what they believe, how is that not the ultimate form of judicial supremacy? And of I agree course, with that Of course, there's major allegations yeah. on that. And, and as someone who is spo- supposed to have integrity and, and supposed yeah. to represent a high elected office, that's someone who needs to be following the Constitution, yeah. which includes also following rulings legal, legal precedents yeah. and, and rulings that you disagree with. I mean, 
the fact of the f- that he could do that in you know state court, what who's to say that he's not going to mm-hmm. follow those same decisions and that same line of decision making if and when he would have been elected to the Senate? Yeah. Uh, so that's something that's very troubling. Another thing that's troubling as of late when you look at these last elections are the polling data and things that are coming out on that. Uh, you saw in Trump versus Hillary, the polls not necessarily being accurate. That was something that kind of came into play with this race as well, although there was many other dynamics at play. Okay, so this is where... As someone who studied math at a collegiate BS level, um, BS Bachelor of Science, not 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 BS the other kind, just to specify. <laughs> okay, so I take okay, I have an issue with the way that the media didn't call Trump winning and then blame the polls. No, the problem is that we hire these pundits to be responsible for building these models. What was it? HuffPo gave Trump under 1% chance of winning. Upshot, like the New York Times gave him 1% of winning. Day before the election, they gave him a 15% chance of winning. When realistically, what the polls showed was Hillary Clinton was within or just outside of the margin of error in most of these polls, especially when you counted for the state model. And so I know that people were giving Dean Silver and 538 a lot of flack for their model giving him essentially a one in three chance of winning, but that made sense. The one in three chance that Trump had of winning was the same one in three chance that Doug Jones had of winning. The difference being this, everything about this race in the end did favor not not favor Jones outright, but favor the conditions to let Jones win in the sense that, okay, so when Trump was running, he was running against Hillary Clinton, who has had a pretty high rate of unfavorability and has been in the public eye for decades. You know, like there was really no changing an opinion for her. So the fact that, I mean, obviously the polls oscillated a little bit, but people's opinions, people's their sense of unlikability with Hillary Clinton was so pervasive. I mean, most exit polls showed that people were voting against her. With with Doug Jones, I mean, he's he's not like the most unlikable guy. He doesn't speak like in this radical social justice language that's so wildly offensive. I, I guarantee you. The only you, main polarizing topic with him was, is was his, abortion. Was abortion. abortion I, yeah. If he softened his abortion stance, he would have won in a landslide. Absolutely. So so that was something that was not going to favor more the fact that he wasn't running against someone who was as unliked as Hillary Clinton. That's the big one. Republicans will never have another Hillary Clinton. And then it also just obviously as like the scandals broke, what the, the, the Access Hollywood tapes and the allegations against Trump, again, because Trump had been in the news for so long, as someone who publicly had affairs and was was unfaithful in his marriages, as someone who had always said degrading things about women, it wasn't that surprising. I mean, like, it you knew what you were buying. With Roy Moore, who had billed himself as like this, I'm this conservative Christian, I believe in family values. Like, you know what? He and Kayla Moore are a lot closer to Donald, or to, <laughs> are a lot closer to uh, Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton than, um, I don't know, than to any of the founding fathers, as they like to liken themselves. Well, another issue with these polls, and I think what previously was effective for them in the past and in prior elections, prior to uh, the most recent federal elections, um, was the fact that polls have a measure of degree to predict voter behavior and conditions in which used to be prevalent and what used to be the politically correct And now we've kind of moved from politically incorrect is the new politically correct. And these polls are becoming less and less reliable. And I think that people who are running for office, as well as voters, cannot be relying on these as their primary source of information and their primary source of faith in electoral outcomes. Because honestly, with all of the changes in the climate of politics that have been going on as of late, it's just something that's completely unpredictable. I mean, it came in between one and a half 
percentage points yeah. for Roy Moore, for this to be a completely different decision, and for Roy Moore, an alleged child molester, to be holding that office. And that is a very, very small margin. I would like to still stress that, although this was a win for Doug Jones, Jones that is a very, very small margin. Could have easily been turned the other way had different people come out to vote. And we cannot be relying on these polls anymore. No, well, I mean, especially in these elections where there's so much more variable, I think a lot of people just hated Hillary Clinton so much or just hated Donald Trump so much that their votes were fixed. You know, there were so many begrudging Bernie voters who was agree. like, who was, they detested Hillary Clinton, but they did not want a Trump presidency, you know? So it's like they were able to just hold their nose, noses, go to the polls. I mean, I know that one of the things that was also discussed, 538, um, they were really, obvi- as they are with most elections, were incredibly on it. They were saying that there was this massive difference between live caller versus automated polls. And some of the factors that they listed were... Um, about, like, the difference in response rates, what people are, as you were saying, with, like, the political correctness element, what people are actually willing to fess up to voting, you know? Because, I mean, Alabama's an incredibly conservative state. It's one of the reddest states in the unions, which is why it's so egregious. Well, that it's been Bannon over two decades I mean, I mean, since the Democrats held that yeah, seat. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think a easy starting point is don't bring in... Uh, a child molesting philanderer into the great red state of Alabama. And then also another thing, a point to Trump. People forget that Trump was able to defy. I mean, I think that the polls were more correct than incorrect for the 2016 election, but people forget that Trump was able to defy them because he did have a special quality for some people in this country. Yes. If you are from this country and if you truly believe in this sort of vision of the American dream where the guy gets wealthy, gets the girls, gets the nice cars, gets the towers with his name emblazoned on it, cares about business, wants to deregulate the country. You know, that actually has a special appeal. Let's be real. Like, Trump, prior, I forget which website did this, but someone did a study of all the rap songs and all, like, the pop culture that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump had been mentioned in. And prior to the birther conspiracy, Trump's were mostly positive because people saw in him wow, if I were rich, this is what I would do with my money. No one had that sort of idealization of Roy Moore. And the problem is he did everything he could to almost insult what people think of the South. You know, totally. he would walk around stage with a gun, even especially as he we, rode in on the horse. Uh, yeah, as we talked about with, you know, with the horse. I mean, I think, I mean, as we've already explained, that was, I can't, I, I would be curious to see how much that changed those people who are just willing, who are just about to just go like, whatever, I hate this guy, but I'm this pro-life. And then just seeing there is so much hubris there. Well, to go back to your point on Bannon and, and pushing candidates, um, certain candidates, I think a massive issue that's come up recently is the fact of candidates being involved in elections in which they aren't the proper candidates. You saw it in Trump versus Hillary. They were two polarizing figures. And myself, um, being a Democrat and following Hillary for her career, obviously I would have voted for her. However, I'm not blind to the fact that even on the Democrat side of things, even in the people who are establishment Republicans and establishment Democrats, voting in this last presidential election was a very tough decision. And most of the time, people end up just still going with partisan ties and and voting for the party. But there was also people who voted against Hillary because they just couldn't possibly vote for her, although they're registered Democrats. And then on the other side, there was people who were registered Republicans voting against Trump because they couldn't possibly vote for him. That's something that also came into play with this Alabama election as well. There was a lot of Republicans who either had to choose to, one, write in their vote, or two, 
vote for Doug Jones because they could not morally vote for Roy Moore. And that's an issue of letting Roy Moore get to that point and letting a poor candidate get to that point in the election where voters on either side of the party are forced to make that decision. You should vote for the person you want, not the person you don't want. Not the lesser of two evils. No, I mean, it's everything that... I mean, Bannon pulled off such a feat. My God. I just hope that this really dispels the myth that he is, like, this evil genius. Because, I mean, okay, I mean, you can argue evil or not. But, I mean, what what is what is he capable of getting done? He's sunk. I mean, who, who, who have been his winning candidates? Milo Yiannopoulos. You know, Roy Moore. And I mean, Trump is 0 for 2 no, on endorsements now, too. But even, but even so, okay, here's the thing. I think, I mean, part of the the rumored tensions between Trump and Bannon was after Bannon took the, did the time cover where they called him like the mastermind or whatever. And the fact is, is that Trump, I mean, you have to give him credit that he did do a lot of this himself. You know, Trump, I mean, Trump was able to make himself so important, not just in American politics, but in American culture long before anyone ever cared about Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon, he absolutely does read the coattails of other people's success or, I mean, even with Ray Moore, Ray Moore, I mean, Mitch McConnell, screwed up royally by nuking um, Mo Brooks in the primary and trusting that Luther Strange would be able to outlast Roy Moore. And then it's just sort of Bannon just hopped in at the end. But you know what? If he wants to own that failure because he wanted to own that win, he can own that failure. And I think the fact is that the Republican Party is not about endorsing the most deplorable candidate just to stick it to the man. We can stand against things. Like, you can stand against socialism. You can stand against big government, but that has to be because you are standing for limited government, because you're standing for cap. It can't just be, oh, I'm standing against the transgender gay agenda, which is along the lines of what Roy Moore was saying when he was saying that, like, all of the the numerous credible allegations against him were, um, where he was saying it was a part of the, the gay agenda, the trans agenda. I, like, who... Who can even create a parody of this guy? If, if Roy Moore didn't exist, you'd have to make him up. And the fact that Bannon was willing to, he said that Roy Moore has more dignity or has more respectability that, um, in his pinky finger than all of Mitt Romney. Absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> it's, I, I don't know. And and then the, the funniest was his defense of Roy Moore saying, um, oh, it's because, uh, um, it's because Roy Moore served in the military and Mitt Romney didn't because of his faith. Yeah. You know who else didn't serve in the military? Donald Trump. It's just, I don't (laughs) know. Well, okay, let's talk about what's next for the GOP and even the Democrats moving forward as a result of this election. We kind of touched on it earlier with the fact that people are outraged because now there's someone who is pro-choice or pro-abortion in the Senate, although really that is kind of an irrelevant decision right now because they do, Republicans do still have a majority in the Senate. Although moving into 2018, And given what's happened in this race, this might set some precedent, as well as will set some fuel to the fire, especially for the Democrats to be able to campaign. And it's also reduced the fuel to the fire that the Republicans were anticipating from the Democrats. Had Roy Moore had won this, Democrats would have had a little more to argue against. Although... I will like to I would like to note that going into 2018, the majority of Senate seats that are up for re-election are ones held by Democrats. So although Democrats see this as a huge opportunity, myself as a Democrat, I get a little worried because that means that there's more seats to be taken over by Republicans. I wouldn't say that this is the end all be all for Republicans. And I wouldn't say that this is a huge win as all the Democrats are hyping it up to be. I think both parties still need to stay vigilant and need to devise a proper plan. Yeah, well, I mean, there are two ways to read this. The one way to read this is, okay, well, literally took a pedophile for um, for the Democrats to win. But the other way to look at it is that, you know, 
outside of like, I mean, we're in Los Angeles. We are in like a coastal elite bubble. Outside of these bubbles, you know, old white guys still win elections. And I'm not saying like, oh, let's just reinforce nominating the same old white guys. But the Democrats extreme push towards social justice and identity politics, that will not work in the South. And not because Southerners are so backwards that they won't vote for a minority or like a person of color, but it's it's just the fact that if you have someone who can represent democratic and working class values well and fight their way against a mostly conservative state, those should be who you run, oh, not just course. not just whoever can check the most minorities off the box. I think the leadership of the Democratic Party is pushing to this more progressive agenda. However, they also have to realize state by state, the dynamics are different. What the voters want are different. And the climate is different in each state. And you need to endorse candidates that represent the state rather than the party and the heads of the party, the Pelosi's and the Schumer's as a whole. So in the instance of the South, this means endorsing for the Democrats candidates who are moderate. We talked about Doug Jones and how if he had a lesser stance on abortion, he would have even had an easier time winning. These are all all things that the Democrats need to consider. And my critique of the Democrats as a Democrat myself would be that they are not doing enough to endorse candidates to get their name out there and put their backing, put the party backing behind candidates well enough in advance for the public to know about them. One of the biggest problems with running a campaign is recognizability and mobilizing that candidate to a point where everyone in the state recognizes them and knows what they stand for so that they are motivated enough to get out and vote. Yeah, I mean, you'll never, just like just like Republicans will never have another Hillary Clinton, Democrats will hopefully never have another Roy Moore to run against. Running against someone only gets you so far. The candidates you nominate actually have to be viable. You can't say, oh, wow, okay, so Roy Moore's so insane. Let's turn around. What's the other guy saying? And he can't be saying you should raise your children to have 57 genders, and if you don't, then you're a bigot, you know? That's just, that's just not going to, especially not outside of hyper, like, liberal areas. And that's where... I mean, Democrats like to crap on the heartland, but, you know, the Senate's not um, population, rep- is not population-based, it's just states' rights. So, I mean, if you want to start winning those elections, you have to start thinking a little bigger than, than we can just have the Rainbow Coalition, because that's, you have to be, I mean, both parties need to start running for things, not just against them. Exactly. Well, on a lighter note, this week we had also an incredible amount of hilarious news headlines. Are they fake or are they real? Exactly. Although not all of them were entirely accurate, I must say. Uh, But one of the crazier ones was about Omarosa leaving the White House. And I'll leave that to to you, Tiana, uh, to explain what's going on here and who she is. Okay, so basically Omarosa Manigault Newman, she entered fame and the public consciousness in the early 2000s, when Trump launched The Apprentice, the original TV show, she was such a fan favorite. And she was really, like, the earliest uh, incarnation of the TV, of the reality TV villain. She mastered it. Um, and so she became so ubiquitous um, with, like, The Apprentice that he had her on. The Celebrity Apprentice, Piers Morgan famously said that she was not a celebrity, um, Which, by the way, we watched the YouTube clip just before this, and we're absolutely laughing. Yeah, we yeah, that took us a while to calm down. It was just so funny, and Piers Morgan, wow, he never fails to uh, entertain. So basically, Trump gave her, Trump kept on shuffling her around jobs during the campaign, and she was essentially his african-american outreach coordinator during the campaign then she was in charge of communications for the for some other office no one knew what she did 
that was the thing. Like the recurring thing was like most reports, of the people under yeah. the Trump administration. Yeah. No one really knows what their role is. But Omar also just took this to like the next level. There were so many. She she kept on getting into fights with April Ryan, who then became the person to break. I think she was the one who broke the story that Omarosa was then fired. I think that John Kelly. So, I mean, none of the reports are straightforward. All we know is that Trump said, I wish her all the best in the future on Twitter. And all the reports from Daily Beast, I think it was Lachlan Marque and uh, April Ryan, they were saying that basically she was fired by John Kelly. And then the craziest thing was she tried to break into the residence portion of the White House. <laughs> and so, and this, um, the Secret Service claims that they did not escort her out. But, you know, all the reports are conflicting. So the way the media covered this, though, it was honestly, it was really mean. I mean, this this White House is a reality TV show. You know, it's like over the summer, it was Survivor, who's going to get kicked off this week, who's can next this week. CNN, it was, I think it was Brooke Baldwin's show. Yeah, it was Brooke Baldwin. It was uh, April Ryan, Angela, Angela Rye, uh, Simone Sanders, I believe. All like cackling and laughing like, like high school mean girls over Omarosa leaving the White House. Like I get like she I get that just lose her job. Let's have a little bit of decency. Also, here. okay, I get that she's like a little extra, but if we're gonna play like the lefty like identity politics game, like you're gonna laugh and howl like like none other over like the single black female who gets ousted from the White House and not like the dozens of white men who did. I mean, this was something else. You should really watch the clip if you want to see just, I mean, this is why people dislike a lot of what CNN or how CNN reports on things. I will say, however, it is reported that she is going to be giving a tell-all. So (laughs) I would like to say open invitation for anyone who's been ousted from the White House Talking to you, Bannon, Comey, Omarosa. We are happy to host this tell-all. Please, please. Okay, Anthony Scaramucci or Lance Lafer of the Scaramucci Post. If you're listening, we would love to have the mooch on. I mean... This has come full circle and gone completely bachelorette with the season finale when all of the people who have been broken up with by by President Trump now come and tell all and spill their feelings. We promise we are a safe space. We are great listeners. And we would love to have you on for the tell-all. I'm just waiting for... um I didn't come here to make friends by Omarosa. Tell all no more. (laughs) That's what I'm waiting for. All right, well, let's move on to Jimmy Kimmel. I know he came into a little bit of flack with the media this week. Uh, For those of you who don't know, he released a monologue on his late night show in which he... Trotting out his kid who had just come from open heart surgery... Using him as a political prop. I'm sorry. That's just how um, I have to dive okay, into Okay, I view, I view okay. it a bit differently. I think he was trying to get people motivated. I don't discredit what Jimmy Kimmel has done lately with trying to get people fired up about politics and care about the issues. You know, someone who would typically watch a late-night TV show is maybe watching that instead of the news. So I don't mind this coming into the late-night TV realm. I don't mind the use of his child. I think, you know, it strikes a personal chord, gets people fired up and emboldened about these issues. However, there definitely were some inaccuracies in his speech about Chip, in which were cited in a great article by the Washington Post. Uh, Tiana, how about you explain Chip a little bit and what it's all about? Yeah, so, okay. Basically, it's the Children's Health Insurance Program, and it was about its reauthorization and its funding, and obviously the funding for everything. I mean, even the budget hasn't been settled yet because there are so many inter-party disputes, let alone just within the United States Congress. So it's I mean, Republicans and Trump personally have come out and said that they're going to make sure that SHIP gets reauthorized. They're going to make sure that it's completely funded. And the way Kimmel presented this narrative was CHIP is in jeopardy and it's because of the Republicans. I mean, that's more or less what he was saying. So, um, 
The irony being that Orrin Hatch, the Republican senator from Utah, is basically the one who enacted CHIP and made sure that it happened, I believe, um, in partnership with Ted Kennedy. So it's not like CHIP is like this Democratic thing that that barely has made it through Republican administrations. No, it's been going on, what, like two decades strong and... um, and it, it's it, it was spearheaded by the Republicans. The current Republican president and the and the current Republican Congress have said that they will reauthorize it. And it's, it's, it's always Kimmel, had bipartisan support. Yeah, yeah. And, is, and Kimmel alluded to the fact that it was Democrats pushing for this, and that yeah. Republicans were not and wanted to let this slide by the wayside, which is not true. And even I can admit that. Another thing that I would like to add is people talk about how this chip program was left out to dry and was not reauthorized and just kind of forgotten about into obsolescence. However, the fiscal year ends September 30th, and that is why this chip program technically ran out. And states continue to have funding for this, are continuing to spend money on the chip program. No children are out of health insurance yet. And by the end of December, only three straight states are proje- are projected to exhaust their funds and not have enough funding, with the other ones needing to have a decision on this bill by March in order to continue the program. So there is still time for this, and this is a matter that Congress actually does care about. We have heard it from testimonials from different people in Congress, and something that the White House is rumored to be making a decision on by the end of, uh, end of December. So hopefully there should be no issues. I think people are getting a little bit too caught up about this right now before a decision that has actually been detri- detrimental has been made yet. Yeah. I'm Okay, there are two things I hate about this. Okay, so, sorry, just to jump into the negatives. All right, so the reason why I hate Camel trotting out his kid for this, other than the fact that he's a sick kid who should definitely be recovering rather than under bright lights, just being made a political prop before he even has the cognizance to consent to it, is that okay? If All right, going, that's a little far in my opinion. Okay, okay. So okay, here's my thing. Here's my thing. You didn't see Obama taking out his kids and saying, "Do you want my daughters to have health care?" Pass Obamacare. And that being said, I obviously did. His daughters have opponent. open heart surgery, and were that affected by illness? No, but kids still need health insurance. That's what chips for. It's not just for the sick ones. No. So okay. So my thing is, all right. Kids should not be politicized under any circumstances. The end. It's the reason why we shouldn't make fun of presidential kids, left or right. So, the end, okay. Anderson Cooper. All right, go. Okay, well, okay, I don't know. So just, okay, just the last thing that I hate about this, I don't mind when CNN has the cryons that fact-check Trump. I have a problem when they fact-check Trump and then share Kimmel's monologue and just say, and just say watch Kimmel's heartwarming monologue as he cries for the nine millionth time on like national television. All right, you know what? If you're going if you're going to hold the president to one standard, you need to hold someone that more Americans probably get their news from than anything else to the same standard. You know, like more Americans probably are influenced by Jimmy Kimmel than are in, than are influenced by Anderson Cooper, who is the subject of our next topic. No, what? Well, to touch on that, I agree with you on that point. And what I will say, although that kind of paints CNN in a bad light, let's also talk about you know the Washington Post did release something great fact checking yeah, Kimmel, yes. and they are typically but the original, a leftist media source. So yes. let's let's give credit where credit's due in this instance. Yes. I mean, it's that being said, the original news story from the Washington Post painted it as watch his heartwarming clip, and then the fact check story came out, and obviously those are headed by different editors, so you have to give credit to the editors and to the writer of the fact checking story. It was um, Glenn Kessler. Props to him for really doing a thorough job. Um, but I, it just shows that editorial staffs need to decide what their consistency is. And I mean, I, I guess, all right, so not to, I feel bad. I feel like we're beating on CNN. It's just, they're such a big network. And they've just been in the news a lot over like the last two weeks. So, I mean, the the last CNN story, I mean, not the last one, but uh, a really notable one was Anderson Cooper's Twitter account responding to Trump's surprisingly measured 
uh, response to Roy Moore losing, which was basically, we need to which, run. Which, by the way, we all know he did not write that okay. tweet. I would like to get that on the air right all now. All right, yeah. No, so, so, you know, probably not. Um, so, Anderson Cooper's Twitter account, which has 9 million followers, says, responds to Trump saying, like, oh, like, we need to nominate better people. Oh, really? You endorsed him, you tool. Pathetic loser. It got, like, tens of thousands of likes. So then CNN came out immediately, and and they were saying, Anderson Cooper was in D.C. at the time. This was this was posted. The tweet came from New York, I believe. Like, and they, like, had, they, I mean, it was credible that, that it wasn't him physically who did it. But then the story that they came out was weird. So they say, they say it was, they say it was Anderson Cooper's assistant, who was one of the only people who had Trump's Twitter account on his phone, had left his phone unattended and unlocked at the gym, and someone used it to tweet from Anderson Cooper's Twitter account. Okay, this makes no sense. Anderson Cooper has 9 million followers. Obviously, neither of us have even remotely that close amount of Twitter followers, and I will not leave my phone unattended with a friend as I go to the bathroom. Even more than that, we both have <laughs> passcodes on our Yes! Whose who's passcode doesn't, like, immediately lock after 15 seconds? When you're working for a major news yeah. source. And, yeah, right? I mean, that's, like, the first thing you learn in a newsroom. Protect your devices. And then furthermore, okay, unless if this were, like, a prank being pulled, and I don't think that anyone who's your friend would pull a prank this seriously that would jeopardize you losing your job... How would you know that this random phone belonging to... How would you know... Oh, I'm going to search Anderson Cooper's Twitter account. Okay, I think everyone knows what happened. I think this is all a pundit's theory on Twitter. That it probably just was the the assistant who thought that he was doing it from his own personal account. And then CNN's just trying to sort of spin it so it doesn't look like the assistants are so anti-Trump. Which, obviously, there is not an issue with, with, uh, with an assistant being personally anti-Trump as long as they're being a good journalist or being a good production assistant. 100%. I, I would like to believe that anyone working in media and working in journalism or news has the ability to separate their political ideology mm-hmm. from their work and make it unbiased when it needs to be. Yeah, but the fact that we just have to promulgate this false idea that, that oh no, we have no bias. No, you can have a bias. It just cannot affect your work. And I mean, that's something right now we're seeing with the Mueller investigation. And that's... um. With all right, I do not know how to pronounce this this FBI official's name, Peter Stork. Okay, I'm just gonna call him Peter Stork. I have a feeling this is wrong, but basically, Peter Stork sent to another FBI um, agent, Lisa Page, during the Mueller investigation, or, or, or no, preceding the Mueller investigations. So it was during the 2016 election. He basically talked about the Russia investigation, called it an insurance policy. So. Obviously, there's not an issue with finding out that that an individual FBI agent has a bias. People voted in this election. It was obviously super polarizing. But calling a political tool an insurance policy to make sure that the outcome that you don't want... Okay, this is... It's, it's consequentialism of the highest form in a way that could not be any more threatening to the Mueller investigation, which I think is important to happen, not because I think that Trump is guilty, but because I think it's important to figure out how deep was Russian interference in our election, which speaks more to me viewing Russia as the enemy rather than me assuming the Trump administration did anything wrong. Um, but it just goes to show we don't understand, we don't understand how bias influences things, and we have as a society, have completely lost the idea of you can have a personal bias that doesn't mean that you're weaponizing that bias. It seems like it seems like we are not willing to accept that line and we don't know how to use it anymore. 
Also, realistically, I think people are getting way too intense and fired up about all of these FBI investigations. It's like every week people are going, oh my gosh, Trump's about to get impeached, where no, okay, that's not the case. Let's all get a re- give it a rest. Realistically, no one cares about this FBI investigation until anything fruitful or the quote-unquote smoking gun is suddenly yeah. revealed if it does exist. So everyone, cool your, cool your jets for a second, okay? <laughs> it's It's just an investigation right now. None of us are law enforcement none of us are judges this is all just hearsay at this point yeah no and you know i mean there's already so much happening why do we need to be talking about what's supposed to be happening behind closed doors like net neutrality the uh the elephant in the room yes okay so that happened today um that was a weird hearing so basically while ajit pai uh the fcc commissioner was uh sort of like holding like the vote and the conference for that they all got called out of the room because there was a credible security threat and they had to have, like, the bomb squad dogs on it. Uh, it just goes to show how heated this issue got. So basically, Ajit Pai, his family started receiving personal, like, very racially charged threats, um, very violent threats because people are so heated about the issue of net neutrality. And honestly, in my humble opinion, everyone is losing their damn minds over something that really doesn't matter that much. You know what? I wouldn't go that far because I would say that we don't know how much this matters yet. We don't know Comcast and AT&T, what they're going to do with these lack of regula- regulations. But I think the main thing is with people tweeting about net neutrality and people talking about it, I think people are just choosing to take a stance on this issue and be so crazy about it without really completely understanding it. Yeah. I bet you have the people that are tweeting about this, ask them what it is, and they don't know. Yeah. Essentially, in a nutshell, net neutrality... Um, was these regulations were put in place during the Obama administration in 2015. But now with them, with these regulations repealed, it means internet providers could basically set up fast lanes for certain websites and for certain companies. So in terms of coverage and in terms of making the internet faster and more access to them. So where this does become troubling is for small businesses and for small businesses that have websites and small business owners, If this does take a more radical route, which we don't know yet, so I don't understand why people are getting so fired up about this, although the possibility of this, I will admit, is scary, and it's kind of funny that they voted this way because from a survey from the University of Maryland, which was cited by the Washington Post, it showed that 83% of Americans, including 75% of Republicans, support keeping these existing rules in place of net neutrality, the ones that were created during the Obama administration in 2015. So it seems like the public is in support of this, yet, you know, government is not, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Makes me wonder if crony capitalism is coming into play. Although it will be interesting to see if these, uh, sorry, cable internet providers can provide exclusive treatment to big companies and how this will affect small businesses, which does become troubling, although I hope it doesn't get to that point. I hope these companies do have integrity, although... No one can discount the allure of money. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, okay. This is one where I disagree strongly, but not emotionally. Like, this is not an issue that, like, really gets me fired up. It just, I think I stand back and I look at everyone acting like, I thought there was the tax cuts that were going to kill literally everyone. I didn't realize it was going to be net neutrality. I mean, that's that's a lot of trillions of people to kill. Um, you know, I mean, so many so that we don't even have them. Okay, so when, I mean... This is really a matter of do you believe that that centralizing an economy will do you believe that centralizing an economy will be better for everyone or do you think that letting the free market do its job will be better for everyone? There's a fair case to be made that if you think that if you genuinely believe that the amount of internet access is fixed, that it is not worth investing more into it, then net neutrality makes a lot of sense. But in the first two years of 
of net neutrality being instated by the Obama administration. Uh, domestic broadband capital expenditures fell by almost $4 billion. So basically this means that when there is, without, with net neutrality, there was no incentive to invest in the amount of space and storage and lanes to get consumers to information or to get internet users to information. So, okay, with regards to the whole small business thing, what small businesses don't also host on Facebook? So even if your website, I mean, okay, for instance, the political pregame, we have a website, thepoliticalpregame.com, but we also have our Facebook page. So let's say, okay, let's say this goes extremely poorly. And every single, not every single one, but a lot of the ISPs came out with a declaration that they would not be unfairly biased towards small websites. But let's say they were. It's not that you couldn't, you could still go to our Facebook page. We still host this, this podcast but you on shouldn't our SoundCloud. But you shouldn't be shut out of one avenue versus another. But I mean, you're shut yourself, out. as someone who advocates for liberty, advocates yes. for freedom, why should I be denied the same freedom that because other major players are allowed? It's the internet. Like, because there, there shouldn't other be any control over that. Exactly, because there are other ISPs. Okay, for instance, let's take a horrible website, the Daily Stormer. The Daily Stormer is the biggest neo-Nazi website in America. It publishes absolute anti-Semitic, racist, bigoted filth. And, I mean, right now, all under net neutrality, your internet service provider has to provide you the same access to the Daily Stormer that they do to just any general website, Facebook. I'm not saying that they should do necessarily... That's ideological freedom. Sure, okay, sure, ideological freedom. But also, let's say, hopefully, hopefully... The Daily Stormer gets under 1% of the same view count that, I don't know, let's say Vox.com or BuzzFeed or whatever, or any website that, like, any general news site. If millions of people are going to Vox and a few thousand are going to, to, Daily, to the Daily Stormer, why should they provide the same speed of access? Why, like, that makes no sense from, like, a market perspective. But don't you think... Along that same line, don't you think this is going to open up the avenue for companies to provide greater access to things that they are either economically in favor of or politically in favor of? Twitter already does this. Facebook already does this. And the left loves Twitter and Facebook. But do we mean do we need more of that on a platform that's accessible literally by everyone? Facebook has users. Twitter's ha- Twitter has users. They sign up for that. Everyone uses the internet. But not everyone uses Comcast, you know? Not everyone uses time. Comcast is yeah. the biggest internet it, service provider is, in America. It, it is the biggest, and we want more competition, not less. And the difficulty is that smaller ISPs will not try and enter the market while there's net neutrality. To me, okay, I think the difficulty is that I think that the left sees this issue as an induction of demand, and they view from a from a demand aspect. I think that defenders of what the FCC is currently doing in repealing net neutrality see it as the importance of inducing supply, the importance of adding more internet service providers to the market, having more investment of actual um, broadband lanes and networks. So, and see, we're having a very rational economic argument right now. And just, I think that the, the overwrought language I think right now it's more on, like, the left because they're, like, the ones who are being threatened. But I'm, I'm not saying, like, obviously the right is totally capable of this as well. The idea it's killing millions of people. It's directly targeting the LGBTQ community. No, it's not. This is an economic argument. And it's it's fine to feel passionately, but it's another thing to act like you're being personally victimized intentionally, you know? And, and I think that's yeah. very important. I think... You know, that's kind of something that we like to emulate in our show is that Tiana and I, although we have opposing political views at times or most times, we're able to have these conversations and discussions rather than arguments. And I think that's something that is being 
extremely missed in politics from all sides of the spectrum. You look at, you know, oh gosh, not to bash CNN again because I actually do They're watch CNN. They're just having CNN. a bad week. We, but, we promise but, we'll, bash, we'll do another network. Well, I mean, you, you, watch, you watch CNN or basically any other news uh, outlet or source and you watch their panelists and, and they're unwilling to listen to each other. You have someone on there who is right-wing conservative, someone who's left-wing Democrat, and the other person starts talking and the other one turns their back to them and doesn't want to hear it. And I think where that comes into play is when you when someone feels like they are being attacked personally rather than just yeah. discussing ideas and being open to options, which we hope we can always provide a medium for. I know, obviously, Tiana and I are only two people. We can only really discuss two of our views, but we hope that this can be a space that's inclusive for everyone. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's really the ethos of this podcast. Um, it's And obviously, we're going to try and have guests on here so we can include other perspectives, and we're always open to feedback and whatnot. But I think, in the end, this is just supposed to be about... You know, we're two college students. Millennials get a lot of flack for being unwilling to, you know, expose themselves out of their own, like, ideological bubbles. It's supposed to be about a little bit more than that. Um, And so we will be back early next year, second week of January. Um, This is a special Thursday podcast because uh, Avery is heading home. But um, we'll be returning to our regular Friday evening slot for all of you. And stay up to date on our social media. We'll be posting things on there and and giving you guys updates. Um, Our website is thepoliticalpregame.com. And then both of our Twitter accounts, mine's at Avery Hogarth and Tiana's is at Tiana the First. So stay tuned and we hope to see you back in the new year. Um, And hopefully we have a lot more exciting things to talk about. Tax reforms on the table. We will see where everything goes with that. Yes, enjoy the holidays um, and talk to you guys next year. Take care.